0: I'm convinced everyone needs preaching, even the preacher. So I make a point to listen to several sermons each week. Now, most of the preachers I'm listening to right now are what uh, you'd call old-fashioned revival preachers. In fact, they refer to themselves as revivalists. They, they weren't pastors, although they did pastor at times. They weren't evangelists, although they were evangelistic in their lives. Their passion, their desire was to see the church revived and become the force for change in the world That God intended for it to be. Now despite coming from a variety of backgrounds. Where the theological backgrounds. Where they were born and raised. They are united in their burden to see revival. And in the varying ways that they preach. And the messages they preach. There is one unifying theme. In all of their sermons. In all of their books. and all that they say. And that is that whatever else the church does. If it wants to see revival. There must be prayer. Now the prayer that they are calling for. Is not the kind of. Prayer that's a routine, check your box, go on about your day because you're supposed to pray kind of prayer. The prayer they call for flows not out of obligation but out of a heart aching for God to move. It's a, the prayer flows from a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Helplessness because the prayer knows that if God does not do something, nothing will change. That hopelessness or helplessness because the prayer knows That without God's help, nothing is going to get any better. That this is a God-sized problem and it takes God to get involved. But also hope because the prayer knows that God does move and God does change things. And God is great and awesome and can do all things. This prayer flows from a heart that is heavy and broken. But rather than letting this heavy brokenness cause despair, the prayer lets it drive them to their knees to ask God, who can do exceedingly abundantly above all they could ask or imagine. That's the kind of prayer they say brings revival. It's the kind of revival that, that changes things. Right? Not the kind of revival that's a, a week of meetings where you maybe feel good and you go on and nothing's different. But this kind of revival makes a change, a lasting change. It, it changes a church that has left its first love to a church that loves their God with their heart, soul, mind and strength. It changes a church that has a reputation for being alive but is actually dead till it's actually alive and it's actually thriving spiritually. It changes a lukewarm church into a church fully devoted to their God. It changes an actionless church to action. The results of this kind of change, of the kind of change this revival brings, is that souls are saved. Prodigals are restored, captives are set free, broken hearts are healed, ruptured relationships are reconciled. But it all begins with a heart that is heavy and broken for this kind of a revival. And it begins with that heart leading them to pray. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5 is where we're going to start. Page 371 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Remember, Nehemiah has heard from back, uh, heard back from Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. The people are that are living there are in distress and reproach. The gates are burned with fire. His heart is heavy. And he falls down and prays. And he says, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You who keep Your covenant and mercy with those... Who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. That you may hear the prayer of your servant. Which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel. Your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments or the statutes. Nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember. I pray the word that, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. The title of the message tonight is Falling to Our Knees. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come tonight with a desire to meet with you, to know that you are here, that you are at work in our lives. We surrender this time to you. We surrender this time our ears that we would hear. We surrender our hearts that they would be made tender. We surrender our wills that we would do the things that you want done. Have your way. And Lord, fill our hearts with with heaviness and hopefulness. Lord, there is much in our world that, that is not good and our hearts should be heavy about that. But Lord... Let that not lead us to despair, but remind us of your greatness and your goodness and your willingness to do awesome things on behalf of your church. And Lord, let that lead us to be a people of deep and abundant prayer that we would pray passionately, that we would pray as a priority. That God, we would see our prayers be powerful, seeing the things that we pray for come to pass. That we would see the lost saved. That we would see the prodigals restored. That we would see broken hearts healed and ruptured relationships restored and the captives set free. God, we know that is your desire in our town, in our church, in our families. So we call upon you, God, to do according to your word and do according to your will in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, one of the things we're going to see as we go through Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. When a problem arose, Nehemiah prayed. Now, there are about 12 instances and 13 chapters of Nehemiah praying. Uh, Nehemiah's constant prayer life, it, it makes it clear that he was not trying to do this great work in his own power. Nehemiah recognized his desperate need for God. Nehemiah knew that if God did not come through and if God did not do something... Everything would fall apart here, even at the very beginning, Nehemiah knows that what he is about to ask, what he is about to seek is is something so big that if God does not come through, he will be told no and nothing will change about the circumstances in Jerusalem. Now, remember that his heart is broken after hearing about the lousy conditions in Jerusalem. Right, He cannot bear the thought of Jerusalem staying in that condition any longer. But he also knows that he alone cannot change it. He can't do anything. He can't even visit it because he is the king's cupbearer. And without the king's permission, he cannot so much as go to Jerusalem, much less do anything to bring about any sort of a change that would better the situation there. But what would cause a pagan king to give Nehemiah permission to go and do something for this city? This city that was a rebellious city. This city that had often fought back against the kings that tried to rule over them that were not Jewish. What would cause this king to do that? Well, it was God. Nehemiah's heart was heavy, but it was also hopeful because of God. His heavy, hopeful heart drove him to his knees to cry out to God to do something. You know, as we think about the things that we talked about last week, the things that, that break God's heart, that ought to break our hearts. Did those things disturb us? Did those things make our hearts heavy? They should have. They should have. The reality is those things are all beyond us. Those things are far beyond our capability to change. However, they are not beyond God's capabilities to change. God has the ability to change every one of those situations and turn them around. And God's plan for doing that it is His church. Right? God's plan is to enable His church to do what needs to be done to turn things around. And you and I, we are the church. Right? God doesn't work through some nebulous entity called the church. Instead, He works through the individual people that make up His church. So God wants to work through us to change those circumstances and, and any of the others that we may know about in our town or in our families. But He makes these changes through us only as we pray. Without prayer, there is no power to do the things that need to be done because they are all beyond our personal capability. So what we must do is be like Nehemiah. We must let heavy but hopeful hearts drive us to our knees in prayer. For without the power of God, souls will not be saved. Without the power of God, prodigals will not be restored. Without the power of God, captives will not be set free. Without the power of God, broken hearts will not be healed. Without the power of God, ruptured relationships will not be reconciled. And there will be no power of God to see these happen. These things happen without prayer. We must, we must let our heavy but hopeful hearts drive us to our knees in prayer. Now there are four elements to the kind of prayer that the revivalists talk about in this passage. There are four elements to the kind of prayer that flows from a heavy but hopeful heart that we see in four ways that we pray as Nehemiah did. That first, is confess God's greatness. Confess God's greatness. Notice how Nehemiah starts out. Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. But he begins this prayer not with the problem, but by confessing the greatness and the power of God. And each of the ways that Nehemiah addresses God in this tells us something about what he understood about God's power and God's greatness. He starts by calling Lord God of heaven. By calling God the Lord God of heaven, he was acknowledging God's supremacy, God's sovereignty over all things. As the Lord God of heaven, God is supreme and sovereign over the entire universe. He reigns over all things, even the affairs of mankind. I mean, Nehemiah knew what had happened in Ezra's time. He knew that God had, in fact, at times turned the hearts of pagan kings and made them do his will to bless his people. To Nehemiah, this meant that if God decided to do something, no one or nothing could stop him, not even a pagan king. God could put it into the heart of a pagan king to send Nehemiah to rebuild the city. God could put it in Nehemiah's heart and could make it so that Nehemiah could rebuild the wall and no one could stop him. God could work through Nehemiah to rebuild the city and in the way that God intended for it to go. When Nehemiah prayed to the Lord God of heaven, he was praying to the God who could do anything. Then he addresses God as, Go God, great and awesome. Great and awesome God. To reference the power and the majesty of God. As the great God, He possessed all power and might. As the awesome God, He is the supreme being who is perfect in glory, majesty and holiness. He is the God who is high, holy and greater than any earthly being. This seems to mean that a couple of things to Nehemiah. One, it meant that God had the power to do whatever He wanted. Not only was He sovereign and could make any decision He wants to make, but God had the power to do whatever His sovereign will decided. So God had the, power, the authority to say, this is what I want done. And then God had the power to ensure that that will was accomplished. And it also meant that God was great. And He deserved for His name to be made great in the world. That God deserved that that the city with His name on it. It deserved to have the walls rebuilt. It deserved that people would see that and say look at how great their God is. He deserved that people would walk by and see the glory of the city. And recognize the glory of the God of that city. God was worthy of that kind of worship. Worthy of that kind of praise. And He says... God, you are the God who observe your—I mean, who, who keep your covenant. This was a reference to God as the one who keeps His promises. He is the God who says what He means and means what He says. This is going to be seen. This is a foundational hope for Nehemiah. Now, to Nehemiah, this meant that the same God who kept His word and sent destruction to Jerusalem for remembrance. The destruction of Jerusalem, that was God's will. That was what God said would happen because of their disobedience. But the same God who said that also said, if you turn to me with all of your heart, I will bring you back. And Nehemiah was convinced that God would keep that word as well. That just as he kept his word to send destruction, he would keep his word to bring them back and rebuild the city. As he knew that God wanted done. As Nehemiah called out to God in this fashion. He is praising and worshipping God. But he is also doing more than that. He is focusing his own mind. And his own heart. On the greatness of God. He was reminding himself. And focusing himself on the fact that God is sovereign. And able to make any decision. He wants to make. He was reminding himself that God is all-powerful and can do anything He wants to be done and no one can oppose Him. He was reminding himself that even though this was going to be hard, God was worth the effort. God was worthy of all of the glory that Nehemiah's life would bring him as he set out to do this. He was reminding himself that God does keep His Word and always, always, always does what he says he will do. As much as these were words of worship, this was also Nehemiah's confession of his faith in his God. Nehemiah was confessing that his God could do anything, truly do anything that he wanted to do. Do you and I, do we believe that our God can truly do anything he wants to do and that no one can stop him? That the evil in the world, the darkness in the world, the hardness of human hearts, none of that can stop God from accomplishing His will. Not not just out there somewhere, but right here. In our church, in our town, in our families, in our lives, do we believe that our God is that powerful, that awesome, and that great. Scripture teaches He is. Let me show you just a few verses that demonstrate this. Genesis is anything too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. God was great and awesome and powerful enough. That an elderly barren woman could have a child if he said that's what was going to happen. And when God said it was going to happen he kept that promise and made that happen. Even though it was humanly impossible For that to happen, Jeremiah, God says, Behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God was powerful enough and awesome enough that when He brought destruction on a city, He could bring it in such a way that the people He wanted spared, say, His prophet. Would be spared, would not fall by the sword, would not fall by pestilence, would not have any of that stuff happen to him. He would be spared, even though a giant invading army would destroy everything else around them. And that the God who promised that, he absolutely would and did do that. Luke, nothing will be impossible with God. God is great and powerful enough that a virgin can conceive and give birth to the Son of God. God can keep this promise even when it is humanly impossible for such things to happen. Jesus looked at them and He said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is a great verse. We we like that part, with with men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Does anybody know the context? He's talking about the rich young ruler who left because he loved his money. And Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, well, who then can be saved? Man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is so great that He can even save a rich person. God is so great that He can save anyone. In our human efforts, it is impossible. But with God, agnostics. Atheists, rich people, dirty, wicked sinners, people of other religions, they can be saved. God can do it, and He has promised He will do it. And our lives are all testimonies of the fact that He does keep that promise. If I were to go around the room, we would all say, we believe our God is great and awesome. We believe our God can do anything that He wants to do. But do our prayers... Reflect the greatness of our God? Do we pray like our God is that powerful and that awesome? Even more challenging, do our our lives reflect that? Do our lives reflect that God can do all kinds of things, anything He wants to, and that He chooses to do it through ordinary, average people like us? We're going to look in a minute at Nehemiah's prayer at the end, in His prayer, is make me successful as I go. I mean, do you believe that the stuff that God wants done in, in your family, in our community, in our church, that He can do and will do, not just through people, not just through something called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, but through you. You as a person, is God great enough that He can overcome Your frailties, your sins, your struggles, your doubts, your fears, and use you to accomplish great and mighty things right here, right now, in the world around us. We must. We must believe that. Because that is the whole testimony of scripture. Our God is so great That He doesn't need us to be great. He just needs us to be faithful. He just needs us to be willing. All that is lacking in us is made up through Him. In our weakness, His strength is made perfect, the Bible says. Let your heavy but hopeful heart drive you to your knees in prayer, confessing greatness of our God so we first confess God's greatness secondly seize God's mercy now verse 6 and 7 to me is possibly one of the most interesting parts of Nehemiah's prayer he prays let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel your servants and confess the sin the children of Israel which we have sinned against you now notice first he's confessed their sins does that make sense Israel has sinned. They brought reproach upon God, so God brought reproach upon the people. He's going to confess their sin. But notice, which we have sinned against you. Now that's interesting, because he confesses himself as part of the problem. He confesses the sin as though he had something to do with it. But, how long ago was it that the city was destroyed? That the walls were torn down and the gates were burned? It's about 140 years ago. Nehemiah's grandfather probably was not alive when the city was destroyed. Nehemiah had no more to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, the walls being torn down, than you or I had to do with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And yet he confesses the sins as though he were part of it. Not just God forgive their sins, but we have sinned. Well, why on earth? Would he confess it like that? Well, look at what he goes on to say. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. There's the answer. He may not have been a part of the original problem that caused the God to bring judgment on Jerusalem, but he had been a part of the problem since then. In his life, he had not perfectly kept the commandments and the ordinance of God that he gave through Moses. Very likely, he had done some of the very same things that the people did prior to Babylon invading and and raising the city. Even though he wasn't one of the ones who sinned in a way that brought the judgment on Jerusalem, he had done the same sort of things and was a continued part of the problem. He didn't gloss over it. He didn't say, Lord, they were terrible, but I've got it all laid out. I'm much better now than they were. He says, They did it. I've done the same sort of things. Forgive us. Forgive me. Confess my part in it. Now, this, I think, will be the hardest part for us to, to accept and to deal with when we talk about really kind of the problems in the world. And it's because we have to accept that we're. Part of the problem. You know it's real popular today. To criticize the American church. There are books and blogs. And sermons and podcasts. And you name it. There's stuff written. About all the problems of the American church. Um, And part of what. Bugs me about that. Isn't the criticism. Truly the American church. Has some real problems. And has done some wrong things in our history. What bugs me is that none of the critics take any responsibility for the problems in the American church. Despite the fact they're American Christians who are a part of the American church. They're like little kids who are playing with others that break something off the shelf and then jump back and say, They did it! Not taking any blame. Not accepting that any of it is their fault. And the reality is they all did it. When we look at the problems in our world. The problems in, in our church. The problems in our community. The problems in the churches in our community. We're part of it. We helped do it. We're a part of what is broken about everything. All of us are. Right? The, the church... Is not an entity in and of itself. This is true whether we're talking about the American church, the evangelical church, the Free Will Baptist denomination, or the Northridge Free Will Baptist church. Whatever our church is, it's a reflection of you and I. If our church is broken, it's because you and I are part of the broken problem. If the diamond is spiritually dark, it's because you and I, we have added in some ways to the spiritual darkness. If the church is not fulfilling its mission of making disciples of all nations, it's because you and I, we are not fulfilling our part in making disciples of all nations. Every failure of the church in general, it falls on all of us. We are all part of the problem. And so we must all confess our part. Now this is why I say it's the hardest part to accept. Because we don't like that. Because it hits us in a very personal way. I don't like. What we would all rather do is sit back and point at others and say, I've got a lot of problems with you people. The reality, the reality, there's a truth that D.L. Moody once preached that has struck home to me. Moody said, the man that I've had the most problems with in this world, is D.L. Moody. He gives me more fits than any other human on earth. And I can say without, without hesitation that Stacy Ross causes me more problems than anyone else I have ever known in my life. And with that, I'm not up here saying, I've got it figured out. You people be like me because you're all terrible. Instead, what I'm saying is, this is us. We are all part of the problem we have to recognize that. And we have to, to confess that. And it can't be some sort of generic confession. God, people really haven't done like they should. God, our, our church really hasn't done like it should. God, Gaiman's really not the way it should be. I don't even think it can be a generic confession. God, I haven't really done what I should. Nehemiah's confession is very specific. When he talks about... Have acted corruptly and not kept the commandments and statutes and ordinances which you commanded to us. Now that's a very kind of a, can seem like a nebulous generic thing. But it's very specific. There were very specific charges God brought against Jerusalem that brought about their destruction. Nehemiah is confessing those things that brought that judgment back then. I too have done. I didn't do it then. But I have done it now. He is being very specific in his confession. We must be as well. There will be no revival. There will be no outpouring of God's Spirit without a humble confession on our part. One of the great verses on revival says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. It starts with humility. I will. They will humble themselves. Do you know why we don't want to confess our part in the problem? It's because we're proud. We're better than those people. It was them who did it. Uh, We're we're not part of it. It's those who gathered to discuss and vote whether or not homosexuality was a sin. Now they're the reason the American church is in, in trouble. But not us. Not us. No, no. And yet... We are a part of the problem. And it requires humility on our part to accept that. That I'm not that part of the problem. But I'm a different part of the problem. And I'm part of the problem. It requires humility for us to confess it. It's easy enough for me to say, those people have sinned. It is very difficult for me to say, I, I have sinned. I And part of the problem. It requires humility and the willingness to accept full responsibility for our part in the problem. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, but confused. The point was seize God's mercy. It's true. But we cannot seize God's mercy without an honest confession of sin. Right? Isn't that what 1 John tells us? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. But what if there's no confession? There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. There's no grace. Everyone wants mercy. Mercy is popular. Grace is popular. But few want to humble themselves and confess. But without humble confession, there is no mercy extended. Not to me. Not to you. Not to anyone. If we want to seize God's mercy, Then we must humble ourselves. And confess our sin. And because we are part of the problem. That should make our hearts heavy. And because God extends mercy. Should fill us with hope. And so we need to let our, our heavy and hopeful hearts. Drive us to our knees. So that we can confess our sins and seize God's mercy. We want to confess God's greatness. Seize God's mercy. Thirdly, claim God's promises. Nehemiah next, he begins to pray God's promises. Now, I kind of like the way he does it. Because he starts in verse 8 by claiming the promise of judgment. Remember the word you commanded to your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Again, he's not trying to minimize what what they had done. He's not trying to act like they didn't deserve it. He's saying, we did it. This was all our fault. We did it. You said what would happen if we didn't do it. If we didn't keep your commandments, we didn't. You kept your word. But God, he says, that's not all you said. You also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... Some of you were cast out to the furthest part of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen for a dwelling of my name. God, you said you would scatter us, but you also said if we turned and we repented that you would bring us back. He is claiming that promise, God. Our hearts, our hearts have turned back to you. The revival in Ezra's time, it had started. It hadn't come to completion, but there are people there that we're still trying to seek God. There were people that were still in the places like Nehemiah whose hearts were for God. He's saying, we, we, are, we are more or less kind of, we're keeping our part. We're, we're doing what you said we have to do. God, like, keep your promise. Do what you've said and, and restore us back. It's claiming God's promises in prayer. Now, claiming God's promise in prayer, that's part of the way Jesus taught us to pray. Right? Remember when we went to the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and to pray for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done, it's it's not as much as what we talked about Sunday, about nevertheless thy will be done. That's not as much what Jesus is saying there. Instead, what Jesus is saying there is, there is a will that is God's. And we are to pray that that specific will would come to pass. And we can know what God's will is in most circumstances if we look in the Bible. Because Scripture reveals to us the will, the want, the heart, the mind of God. So we can look in Scripture, and that's what Nehemiah did. He knew what the Bible said. God said He would bring them back. He's not saying, God, if it be Your will, let us come back. He's saying, God, I know it's Your will. I know it is. Bring us back like You said. If we're going to pray from heavy and hopeful hearts, what we have to do is get into the word and find out what it says. Because then and only then will we be confident about what God's will is so that we can pray for that to happen. We can claim it and say, God, this is what you said now. Now do, do what you said you would do, oh God. And that's not presumptuous. It would be presumptuous to say, God, here's what I want you to do now. Do what I say, oh God. That's presumption. That is sin. But to say, God, you have said you would bring us back. And God, our hearts are turning to you. Do what you said, God. Keep your word. That's faith. That's not presumption. That's hope. That's expectancy. That's how we pray. We've talked about praying scripture a lot, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But just one verse one of my favorite verses. So shall, shall bet my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void shall accomplish what I please, and shall prosper the thing for which I, I sin. And there are so many ways we could claim God's promise there. We could claim it for the church service, pray for Sunday service and say, God, you have said your word would not return void. Make it bring forth fruit in every heart of every person that attends our service Sunday or Wednesday when we gather. Let your word go forth and let it bear fruit in their lives. But we can also use it to pray for our prodigals. Right, a prodigal, by definition, is someone who has been in church and now has fallen away. So probably most of our prodigals, they know some scripture. They've been taught some Bible. God, take your word that they know and use it. Use it to bring conviction. Use it to burden their hearts. Use it to disturb their sleep. Use it to bring forth the fruit of righteousness in their lives until they turn back to you. Promises are there. All we have to do is do some digging till we find them. And then, with faith-filled hearts, declare those promises and claim them to God. Do what you have said, O God. For hearts are to be Hopeful because there is much to make our hearts heavy. If our hearts are to be hopeful, we must know the promises of God. Because if everything is bad and there is no promise of a God who can and will make it better, what misery that is. But if everything is bad and our God is able and has promised to make things better, there's hope. So we let our heavy and hopeful hearts drive us to our knees and pray claiming the promises of God over our situations, over our church, over our community, over our prodigals, over our lost loved ones, over the brokenhearted, over those enslaved by sin. Claim those promises in prayer. God, do as You have said You would do. Confess God's greatness. Seize God's mercy. Claim God's promises. Finally seek God's power. Nehemiah's prayer. Oh Lord I, I pray. Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. The prayer of your servants whom you desire. Who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day. I pray. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. this man we will know in chapter 2 is the king. Before we look at what all that Nehemiah did say, you've got to understand what he didn't pray. Nehemiah didn't pray for God to fix the wall. He didn't say, God, make the walls just stand up. How awesome that would be if you did that. He, he didn't pray for someone to rise up and, and go fix the wall. God burden somebody out there's heart to, to go back to Jerusalem and face the opposition and do the hard work. He didn't even pray for God to lay it on Ezra's heart. Ezra was there all day. Ezra kind of went back for part of that issue. God stir up Ezra to do what he needs to do and to get the people going. It's not what he prays. God make your servant prosper as he goes into the king. God enable me to be successful Talking to the king so that I can go back and I can fix the wall. He isn't passively sitting back hoping that someone will do something. He isn't passively, he isn't even just praying that someone will go and do something. Nehemiah himself wants to go back and do something to fix the wall. He's praying for God to make it possible for Him. Use me, O oh God, to do what needs to be done. Far too often our prayers focus on God doing everything while we just sit back and pray. Far too often our prayers focus on God raising up someone else to go and do while we sit back and pray. Truly, prayer is needed. Nehemiah, pray. But it's not pray or work. There's not prayers and workers, it's pray and work. Pray and go. Pray and do. So instead of just praying for someone. To be saved, pray God will give you opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Pray that God will make those opportunities He gives you fruitful to their salvation. Instead of just praying for someone to come to church, pray God will grant you success as you invite them to church. Instead of just praying for our children to be pure, Pray God will help us as we try to explain to them the importance of purity. Instead of praying for someone else to do what needs to be done. Pray for God to empower you to do that thing that needs to be done. Do you believe, again back to the first thing. Do you believe your God is great enough to empower anyone to do what needs to be done? think we would all say yes. So let's make it personal. Do you believe God can empower you to do what needs to be done? Not do you believe God can empower me or Joe or Gerald or Scott or Bill or anyone else that we may know or think of. God can empower you. Your life, your flaws, your doubts, your fears. God can empower You to do whatever needs to be done. Is your God that great and that powerful? Something I think we have to get a hold of is when we say God couldn't, when we say I can't, often we want that to be an act of humility. Well, I'm just not the kind of person that could do that. It's not an act of humility, it's a statement of doubt. What I'm saying is. God can't use me. God is not so awesome that He could overcome my flaws and my failings to use me to accomplish His will. God just isn't that powerful. That's what we're saying. It's not humility, it's doubt to say God couldn't use me to do anything if that's what He wanted us to do. Now this requires us to be active instead of passive. We can't seek God's power and not get out of our comfortable chairs. We have to seek To do things that are beyond our capabilities and beyond our comfort. Because if it's within our capabilities, we don't need God's power to begin with. God's power in our lives only begins where we end at ourselves. If we're comfortable doing it, we don't really need faith. Faith is what carries us past our comfort zone. Into the land where all things are unknown to us. Nehemiah didn't pray for God to fix the situation. Prayed for God to empower him to fix the situation. How we need today to be a people who pray this way. The need isn't for you people to pray this way. The need is for us to pray this way. Me too. Because I have my flaws I have my fears. I have my feelings of limitations. And I can't just sit back and say, Oh God, I've told them now. Send them out. I've got to say, Oh God, I've got to set an example. Send me out. We all have to pray that way. Let's determine that you and I, that we will be people who pray this way. We need to let our... Heavy but hopeful hearts drive us to our knees in prayer. Praying for God to work through us. To accomplish His will in our church, our community, our families, our jobs. Wherever we go and whatever we do. We're going to close with just kind of a time of prayer. Because I I know that we all have burdens in our lives. Aside from the issues that we talked about last week. There are issues that are bigger than us. That we cannot overcome and fix on our own. And our hearts are heavy over those things. What we've seen is that there should also be hope. Because we serve a God who can do all things. And He wants to use us to do those things. So let's use this time and let our heavy hearts be hopeful hearts that cry out to our God, confessing his greatness, seizing his mercy, (coughs) claiming his promises and seeking his power. Let's pray.